This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This is Jenny Allen, and you are listening to the Made for This podcast. Hey guys, welcome to today's episode of the Made for This podcast. It is just an absolute honor that we get to hear from Dr. John Perkins today. A little bit of a crazy story how this all came about, but my sister Joniel lives in Jackson, Mississippi, and is really involved with the Perkins family and all of the work that they do in Jackson. And so I just had this crazy idea. I was like, Dr. Perkins embodies what it means to not live as a victim, but to fight for justice and to fight for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. And so I was like, Joniel, can you go over to Dr. Perkins' house today and help us record this conversation with him because we have got to hear from him. And so she did. So big shout out to my sister, Joniel. And you will not want to miss Dr. Perkins' books. He's got a few amazing ones out there like Let Justice Roll, He Calls Me Friend, and his newest one is called One Blood, Parting Words to the Church on Race and Love. So buckle up get ready for this conversation, get something to write with because you will want to capture so much of today's conversation. So here we go. Here's Jenny and Dr. John Perkins. I am here today with a hero and I cannot wait for you all to get to know him. Chloe is so committed to finding people for this podcast that have such a unique story and a unique perspective. And Dr. Perkins is a civil rights activist, Bible teacher, best-selling author, philosopher, and community developer. He has touched so many people's lives and been part of shaping the civil rights movement. So I'm so honored to have you on here. So thank you so much for being here. I'm delighted. I think America is in a dilemma where they want to have conversation, but fear is overtaking us. And we are acting out of that. And we are now afraid of each other. And we have made hate the communication entity instead of love and dignity. And the purpose of man's existence on earth is to know God, know yourself, and to make God known. Only humanity can reflect the image of God here on earth. And Mm -hmm. that image would be that we loved one another because love is of God. The thing is that we are to reflect this God that we have come to know so they can come to know this God. We got to create a new language a language of love. So Dr. Perkins, let's start with your story. I would love to hear just, I know you can't tell it all. It's it's 89 years worth, but talk a little bit about where you grew up and what it was like with school and, and just growing up in a very different world than exists today. Yeah. I was born in 1930. Uh, my mother was Maggie, had been Maggie Walla, 
and my father was Jap. They had six children that I know of. I was the youngest of seven months after I was born. My mother died of starvation. Mm. My father left us, dropped us off at his mother's house. My grandmother, uh, Emmeline, had been the mother of 19 children. We was not the typical Christian. We was sharecroppers and bootleggers. Bootlegging in those days was pretty much whiskey and homebrew, but bootlegging was more than that. It was selling merchandise. Basically, people had stole and had to get rid of quickly, and we did that on the side. So I was not exposed in those early days to Christianity and religion as we know it now. I will find that later in life. I want to stop you right there because not many people alive can talk about what it was like back in that day. Where did you live and what? talk a little bit about sharecropping and what that meant for your family? Yeah, we was in Mississippi, rural Mississippi. That's in Lawrence County, about five or six miles from town. So the first 17 years of my life was growing up in different sharecroppers around this little town called New Haven. And so were your aunts, uncles, parents, talk, just talk about what their lives were like and what your life was like as a child at that point with injustice and what that felt like. Yeah, we, we grew up on a, a good size plantation, not like the Delta plantation. These was plantation of five or 600 acres, not a huge. But even on that side of the plantation, you would have up to 10 or so sharecroppers on that place. And so it would be a pretty concentrated rural community. Uh, we lived about three to five miles from a school. School, I remember the first time I got a book, I went to a drugstore to buy my pre-primer book. I grew up with this massive, from the time I can remember, I almost felt like that I needed to learn. God did not destroy my mind with convincing me that I was inferior. That's a damage. That's what we see, the death and the violence in the black community. You will hate those that are near you. And right now it's becoming domestic. Most of the killing now in our neighborhood is domestic killing. But we grew up on the plantation, but we grew up in a sort of a family environment. We grew up with cousins. We got folklore Christian values, but we was not that much a part of the church. When I started school when I was six years old, the school for black folks was about five months. School for the sharecroppers was less than that because we would gather our crops, finish that about November, and then that would be December. Half of that would go to school, and then January, February. By March, sharecroppers was now cutting fence line and not going to school. So we would go 
for four or five months in a, a one-room schoolhouse. The white folks had big yellow buses, but we had to walk. And many little white kids would hang out the window, spit out the window, throw something. We grew up in that uh, environment. Uh, I'm so convinced, I think the salvation was that I never believed the lie that white folk told the black folk and the black folks told the white folk. The white folk told us that we were inferior and they told us that they were white and superior. That is classic what racism is in life. And if both people believe that lie, then they've got a culture formulating that is a lie. So how did you not absorb that? How did you live a different narrative? We, we uh, lived on a plantation with the plantation owner, had boys that was older than me, and they had boys that was the same time as me. And I could play ball with them. We played together. We got to know each other. We got to play together. Your child is going to come. The next door neighbor is going to come and say, let so-and-so come out and play with me. If white ladies are going down the street with a black, with their white kids or the black kids, the black kid is going to go play with the white and the whites is going to go play with the black unless they hold their hand and tell them not to do that. And then the kid going to say always why, why, and then they're going to get a brainwashing. I never believed that brainwashing. <laughs> but you heard it. <laughs> I heard it, but I grew up in the day when Jackie Robinson came along. And they say now that he opened the doors for black people to be involved in athletic national. No, he did not open the door. That's too narrow. He took the fence down and made a playing field that they played on together. See, so a lot of the foolishness that we was told was based on that racial inferiority. And if I went to the church, because the church was the steward of that, the church was the one that held that gap in. In any society, I'm broad now, I'm teaching broadly, Whenever there is a change and a conflict of society, whether it's in any nation, you got to deal with their religious belief first. And our religious belief that it was all right for blacks to be separate from white and they was inferior in our society. We still ought to know better, but we have never affirmed the Constitution, which is the best interpretation of the Magna Carta of any law that ever been written before in the history of man. The American Constitution is the best. It's the best. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all humankind was created equal, and that is one human race that all come from Adam. And that's why you have the genealogy in the Bible. 
and every time they come up with a genealogy, you are telling where we came from. We was created to reflect God here on earth, and they needed no other reflection. Don't make any other reflection. One God, one mediator between God and man, and that man is the incarnation of Christ here on earth. He was the express image of the invisible God. To know God is to know the reflection that was brought in Jesus Christ and to know the humanity that reflects that come to know that God and it's our job and it's the church's job to keep that reflection going. That reflection was one time and for all committed to the church. And so we got to come back there. That's our crisis today. Our crisis today is the lack of greeting. We got a bad language. We got a language of hate. I did not think five years ago we could be where we at now. But when we made hate the winning standard, one could hate the other one. We lost diplomacy. We lost patience. We lost that space between when we see people until we get close enough to know them. We build walls between us. We build international walls and we build family walls. We build ghetto walls within our society. That need to be told to all of us. And we really got to tell each other together and we got to talk about it at the same time. We got to get rid of terms like a white church and a black church, a white gospel and a black gospel. There is one gospel, and that one gospel is revealed to us through the one God. And the one God is revealed as Jesus of Nazareth. That was to be good news. So we, we done accepted a washed down religion and our evangelical religion now have been captured by one political party. And that one political party thinks that it's better than the other political party that got everything mashed in there together. I don't know where to start at to believe. So either one of those reflects God. And we think today we got to have one of those. So our life today is so far away from the kind of love and passion. Now, you say that to me, John Perkins. I'm, I, it's becoming deeper to me as I get closer to God. I can see it a little clearer. I need to confess my sin every day. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, keep on cleansing me from all sin. That cleanliness means that I was just like I had never seen, he washes all my sins away. And the Bible said, if my people, white people, black people, any people that are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, he said, God said, I will hear you from heaven and I forgive your sin and hear your land. And one other thing now, as I get near the end, I'm loving people. When I see white people, I love them. When I see an Asian person, I'm so glad that they're loving me and I can love them back. I'm in competition with them. 
it feels so good to be loved. And it feels so good to give love. Love is of God. And we need the churches here to steward that, to be our coming together, learning from each other, worshiping together. He loves us all. And we fall in love with him. We got a partnership going here. We got a friendship going. He calls us to be friends. I mean, that's the message that we got to have with as little condemnation as we can have. We got to try to create a, a receive one another. Receive one another. Love one another. These are the last words of, of Jesus. By this may all men know you to my disciples because you love. Uh, one another. And, and so we don't realize that we have been deceived. So we got to get over that deception and come back to loving. Now, I see that is happening in the multicultural churches. And I see it is happening sometimes in suburbia more than the other because I think they feel and see the isolation and they're calling it guilt now. They're calling it privilege. Now, we need to share our privilege with each other. We need to love each other. Our privilege is that God loves us. That's our privilege. And he created for us. And if we abide in him and he in us, he will give us some resources and that we can use these resources to create more resources to love each other with in our society. So I went to school for about three years and I dropped out of school and I didn't go back to school. I went back to play ball. I went back for that. They would let you play ball if you was in that community. The other folks didn't know you wasn't going to school and if you was a good athlete. After my brother, my, my grandmother gave away uh, uh, for the kids, she kept my oldest brother and me. He was old enough to plow, and I was the baby. And so we grew up, I've told you, on a plantation where we were interacted. And, you know, most of those boys, those white boys on the plantation, we became friends. And I called them by their name all their life, and they called me by my name. And I didn't have to call them Mr. I remember when I came back home to live, he was a mail carrier in my community. And everybody was saying, Mr. Bush, Mr. Bush. And I would go out and say, hey, Ham, that's what we call him, Ham. And he would say, hi, John. And we became friends. I became friends with his brother and his nephew, you, you know. And my, I remember my wife's grandmother say, are you calling him Mr. Bush? I say, well, uh, look, I'm... I was, but this time I'm a pastor. And I said, uh, I'm a pastor. He should be calling me Mr. But we don't play that game. <laughs> you don't play that game. Now, I do have trouble. That's my trouble is I believe everybody's equal. That ain't popular. I believe I was good as him and he was good as me. That ain't popular. Do you love God? Do you love God? I said, I, I said yeah. He forgave me of my sin. They, they're not going to be mad at me on that. They think I was a little pretty good guy then. Now we got a conversation going. But if I go there and say, uh, are you dying and you going to hell? Don't you know that? That scared them, some of them. 
and it makes you superior that you know something that they don't know. You got to be careful today. It's anger. And many of these kids don't have the kind of religious background that we have now. They are looking on their cell phone and they're getting that information from the judges and from the talk show. That's got our work family that in my community, about 80% of the children is being raised without a father in the home. Oh, Lord, have mercy. That's the percentage that these kids are more subjected to go to prison. And the kids that are the highest go to prison is one who has a family in prison. Oh, Lord, we need help. We need each other. Dr. Perkins, talk about when everything changed for you and when you wanted to fight for justice and you knew this was going to be part of your life. Well, when I got out of the service, I got married to Vera May two years and went in and came out. We started our family. I loved the little children song that brought me to Jesus. When my three-year-old son went to Good News Club, and came home singing, Jesus loved the little children, all the children of the world, red, brown and yellow, black and white. They all are precious in his sight. That was in California. I don't think we could have sung that song in Mississippi because at that time, the National Guard and troops was trying to get some little black kids in Little Rock, Arkansas into the school. When my son came home singing those songs, being taught by white women and black women together in our neighborhood, I said, uh, if there's a God who loved me enough, I was hearing it, to send his only begotten son into the world to die for me. I want to know that God. That's all you got to say. That's all the you got to say, because God is calling us. All we have to do is listen. And so your connection to salvation and justice were simultaneous? It was simultaneous, but I didn't know it. The motivation for justice is that God loves us so much, he don't want us to hate each other. Justice is God's love. I hear these people walking around talking about social justice, criminal justice, and all that. That affects of it. That's the way it enters our society in terms of touching us. But justice is God's love. For God so loved the world, he created his humanity. He loved his humanity so much, he don't want it to perish. And I give unto them eternal life. And I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish. This way of us cutting up justice has become injustice within our society. Justice is knowing this loving and redeeming God who came in the person of Jesus Christ. And neither is there salvation you're talking about. To be saved, to be secured, and to go to heaven. When you got salvation, you're secure. You're secure. You're in his hand, and no one can pull you out of 
the Father's hand. I feel that way. But I feel sin all around me. I feel sin is pulling at me all the time. And I, and I think the more you love God, the more conscious sin you become. And so I feel it more and more. I'm finishing my series of books that I'm going to call my manifesto. And this has to do with the virtue in pain and suffering. I think that is joy and gladness. We're going to use the premise in writing it where James says, count it all joy when you fall into suffering and pain. And we done bought into religion to say we got to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. We ought to be that as much as we can be that. But it's not only given that we should believe on Jesus, but that we should love him so much like we love our children. We're willing to suffer for them. And he engages us, and he wants us to enter into the pain of our society, the pain of our children, and the pain of each other. Come unto me. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. I am meek. I'm lonely, oh Lord, to think that God is lonely for us. Then I'll give you, give you rest. Oh, we got a wonderful, loving God. Dr. Perkins, talk a little bit about the injustices you've seen since your childhood. And then I want you to talk about forgiveness too, because this is something you preach. This is something you write about. And yet those injustices are real. And what did it look like to seek forgiveness and to choose that? Those people who nurtured me after I was came to Christ, those white men, businessmen, and these other people, I was converted in an environment when they wanted to see change. I was converted in 1957. The missionary was coming back from the first furloughs, and they was coming back, and it was a different world there. Colonization was being confronted. Africa for the African, Egypt for the Egyptian. The Muslim world wanted to oil for themselves, not going through other hand. They wanted the colonizers to leave. And when the missionaries came back, they saw that. They had been there before the war, they went back after the war. The United Nations is now being developed. They're trying to decolonize the world. And when I started my family, I got this burden for how we're going to feed them. How's a third gay guy going to feed this family that I want it big? I had bought a big house when I came to Jesus, and I wanted very made to fill that house up with children. And so there was people around me who nurtured me. Now, let me fast forward. Three years after I converted, I felt this call to leave my big job that I worked myself up to and to come back to Mississippi. And that was in 1960. June the 9th, I landed back in Jackson and I began to live among the people. And I felt their pain. Now, keep in mind, those 
white friends of mine in California. When I got a, who, uh, whose club I belonged to and all of that, uh, those people was ready because I'd been going to the prison out there then. They were glad I was coming to Mississippi. And so they became my friends. You don't do much alone. God got other people to join with you. The art of being a Christian is to be friends. I got a book. They call me friend. We asked the question, what did Abraham find when he found the Most High God? He found a friend. What did the disciples, those revolutionary disciples, Andrew and Peter and John, they were looking for a Messiah. What did he find? Jesus, don't call me master teacher anymore. Call me friend. When I was in the Brandon jail, I'm in 1970, when I was beat and tortured, along with 19 students from Tougaloo College, there was two whites in there with us. But when I was being tortured that night, that's when I saw I needed white people, black folks. And I said to God when they was touching me, I said, Lord, get out of this jail. I want to preach a gospel that is stronger than my blackness. I want to preach a gospel that can win these people who are torturing us. I want to preach a gospel that can redeem us. That's when I got the will. You need some will. You got to get some passion for the people you want to win. You can't go there hating them. And you can't go there condemning them as being deformed because they're poor. We got to go there believing in their inherited dignity. If they're hungry, feed them. If they're naked, clothe them. If they don't have a house, find some house for them. Put them into your house. I ain't getting against that. I'm saying it's got to be holistic. And we done so broken up in pieces, we have lost the wholeness of the gospel. We got holes in our gospel. And that's, Dr. Perkins, what you've spent your life doing is that holistic care, building community development. I want to ask this question specifically because I think when people are listening, they're going to want to know what can they do. And so, Dr. Perkins, I want you to speak to all of us about what we can do and how you have seen that holistic care come together. After all the questions have been answered, what is the question that engages us? Passion, passion, passion. When the word passion is used, or compassion is used, Jesus solves the problem. Passion is you in an end to the pain of others. And when that pain begin to be your pain, and then together, y'all decide that we want to live among them, love them, Plan with them, learn from them, start with what they know, build on what they have. As the best leaders, when we finish, the people will be saying, we're doing it ourselves, or better yet, we're doing it together. They came to help us, and we did it together. Oh, Lord, have mercy. We got to go to the people. We got to touch them. We got to feel their pain. How do we enter that pain? I'm telling you, I have lived these years in Mississippi, 
59 years, you know what I have gained. I've gained most better than I lost. I've gained friends. I'm a pretty rich guy because the greatest than riches is friends. I'm now old. I discovered, you know, I got to have my uh, colon removed, serious stuff. I've got some cancer in my lung, but you know what I got? I got friends. So, and if I go, I'm going to see my mama. She's been waiting on me there. I know what I wanted to say, but I also know what she's going to say. I want her to say, you done well. Everybody would want that. But here's what you're going to say. What did you do for people like me? That's what motivates me. Gratitude. Gratitude for Jesus died. Gratitude. I died. She died. I live. I could almost ask the story question like David asked in the Old Testament. What can I render unto the Lord for all of his benefits toward me? And David said, I take the cup of salvation. I take the cup of suffering. That's what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's a cup for all of us. And that cup is entering into people's pain. You can tell me, why, why do you feel so good about saying this to your mama? Well, I stood before the Senate Nutrition Committee back in 1968, and that's what I talked about. And out of that talking, the WIC program was born. Mm. That's to find mothers when they have conceived. Oh, my gosh. And give them some food, give them some milk. Dr. Perkins, I just texted my good friend that has given her life also to reconciliation. And her name's Latasha Morrison. And she said, Jenny, Dr. Perkins has shaped generations. And I know that you probably don't even realize the legacy that you've left. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine that you could get your head around it. But what do you pray and hope your legacy is? I think what I would say is that passion and gratitude for your own redemption. Mm, yes. Think of what you are thankful for. And those people who enter into the lives of others have been touched somewhere. They've been touched. They might have been in a hospital bed talking to somebody who was sick, and that very person touched them. We got the capacity to be touched unless we don't become so stone-hearted. Lord, have mercy. We have the capacity. God has the capacity to love us. He said, I did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Our compassion come out of gratitude. We got to find something we are grateful for. God has given us some of the means to take this good news of the gospel to all the world. I think that should be our concentration. And, and I, the question you're asking is a good one. And I think all of us should be asking that question because this might stimulate somebody to ask the question. And that will be my legacy. If these books, if this conversation become my witness, you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, 
Samaria, and to the othermost parts of the world. God calls us to try to live that witness. And what is a witness? A witness is sharing the love of God and the power of the Spirit and leaving the results to God. The most of the people I hear who tell about something that I have done, I had never met them to remember them. A doctor a few weeks ago took me to the hospital. He had come to pick me up, come to find out that he had a procedure they did to get me well. And he had read my book, Let Justice Roll Down, when he was a 10-year-old boy. And that had motivated him, and he ended up going to medical school. And last week, he was on his way to join Navigators, and now he want to be a doctor with Navigators. Do you hear me hear what I'm trying to say? I hear you. I'm trying to say, and you're asking the right question. Yeah. You're asking this for your audience, and what we want them to do is to become engaged. And they got to be engaged around the felt need of the person that they're engaged with. Otherwise, it's superficial. It's make-believe. It's toy. But if you get to know people, now you can relate to their pain. If you're a Christian on your job, and if you have shown some concern, and if you've been praying for a little few people, your friend, and when they get in trouble, they're going to ask you to pray for them. It starts with the people, and it starts with us touching each other. That's why Jesus went around touching people. And that's why people got on their knees like the woman had been uh, for 17 years with pain. She touched Jesus, and Jesus says, passion went out of me. Where is she? Mm. Who touched me? Yes. You, you, so I think people are looking. I think we will find some methods. Don't go around looking for methods. Go around looking for people mm, to touch. That's good. It has been such an honor to listen today. I am truly so grateful for your life. My son is an African-American, and I just could weep at how you have built a better world for him. So thank you so much. But you've also built a better world for us. So thank you, thank you, thank you for your work and your life and your faith and how it's encouraged us today. It was such an honor to have you here. God, I just thank you so much for this great man. I thank you for how you preserved his mind and his heart through such injustice to still be a person of reconciliation. I thank you for his wife and their marriage of 68 plus years, God, how you have preserved that and used them together for such incredible purposes and how they fought the darkness together. And God, I pray for their bodies. I pray for their minds. I pray, God, you would protect them. And God, that in however long they have left, God, that they would continue to use their breath to boast of your goodness. And God, thank you that we have hope beyond this life, and it's a better hope and home than this life. So we have great hope and confidence that we will see each other again and that we will get to be a part of uh, your story forever. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. If 
you've been following along for any period of time, you've probably heard us talk about the Dwell app. It is a audio Bible app, unlike anything we've ever listened to before. And there is a voice or a narrator on the Dwell app that we particularly love called Felix. And we just wanted you to hear Felix for yourself. So check this out. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Okay, and here's what's extra fun. We called our friends at Dwell and said, hey, what would you think of doing a get out of your head scripture plan where we could take all these different scriptures from each chapter and make it into a plan that we could listen to on the go? And they were like, of course. So go download the Dwell app. If you go to dwellapp.io slash Jenny, you can unlock a 10% off their yearly plan, which is amazing. And that's where you'll be able to find the Stop the Spiral of Toxic Thoughts audio Bible plan. So we'll make sure to put all of that info in the show notes and on Jenny's website so you guys can click that link. 